So, Jay, the Terrigen Mists kill mutants and mutate humans who have even a trace of inhuman DNA, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I'm solid on that, but how did they end up floating around the Earth in cloud form? I thought the Inhumans kept really careful track of the Mists. Ah, that was the T-Bomb. The T-Bomb? Terrigen Bomb. Ultimate superweapon developed by Maximus during the War of Kings. Ultimate as in, you know, best, not as in Earth-1610. Okay, but, uh, Maximus? That's Black Bolt's brother. Oh, the evil one. Sometimes. Okay, wait, how would releasing the Terrigen Mists on Earth help with the Vulcan stuff in War of Kings? Were they trying to create new Inhumans or something? Um, no, no. Maximus developed the T-Bomb to destroy the Shi'ar throne world. And that somehow flooded Earth with Terrigen. No, that tore a rift in the universe. And that released the Terrigen Mists. No, oh, oh, I see where the point of confusion is. That stuff happened earlier. That was in War of Kings. Well, wait, so you don't mean... Oh, they made another one. What?! Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 139 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to space, because we are taking a break from regular continuity to check out, I mean, I guess you could call a miniseries from this era. I mean, it's two issues. That's fairly mini. That's true. Uh, and two means it's also a series. Yeah, we're going to look at a two-issue miniseries called Spotlight on Starjammers, which I gotta say, slightly awkward title there. The name kind of implies that we're just going to get, like, detailed biographies of the Starjammers or something like that. It is not. It is actually uh, two issues of adventure. And apparently it was originally planned out to be a Marvel Comics Presents story, which makes a lot of sense when you look at the pacing. We've got two extra long issues broken into short chapters written by an unusual writer for the setup, drawn, luckily, by the amazing Dave Cockrum, who should draw every interdimensional pirate adventure ever. And it's kind of bad and incoherent in ways that I've come to associate with MCP. But it's also kind of awesome and weird in ways I've come to associate with MCP. It's well, both of those. It's the Star Jammers, man. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Dave Cockrum does the art. Terry Kavanaugh does the writing. Now, he was editing Excalibur at the time. Later on, he's going to write mainly a whole lot of X-Men, but with a bunch of other X-Men stuff in dribs and drabs as well. So where does this fit continuity-wise? This is coming out around the same time as the material we've been covering in the ongoings, right? It is, and once again, continuity is a little weird. So we have the Starjammers as the main characters, but they haven't really been around, so you don't get many clues from them. But we also have the presence of Excalibur and X-Factor. Now, Excalibur, based on the costumes they're wearing, it would be implied that this was before the cross-time caper, but once again, based on the fact that Widget is active and vaguely sentient, it would imply that it's after. So, one of those. We've also got Professor Xavier traveling with the Starjammers, and he is not fully recovered from the stuff that happened to him on Earth at this point. They mentioned that his mind is recovered, but his body is not entirely. Yeah, and we've gone back and forth on exactly how Xavier's recovery process has gone. Then we also have X-Factor. Now, they're still living in ship who is floating above the Atlantic Ocean. That implies that for them, it's a little bit before the Judgment War, but that doesn't line up with the Excalibur timeline. So the short version is it takes place vaguely around 1989, 1990 or 1991. Again, this feels like an MCP story. Do you have any idea why it wasn't? I don't. I mean, it was initially solicited as a Marvel Comics Presents story. It would have been a very long one. It would have been, I believe, 12 or 13 parts based on Yeah, that's count. unusual. Yeah, so maybe they just thought that would fit better in, you know, two books, or maybe they thought they could make a little more money this way since the X-Men were so popular. Hard to say. Yeah, so what we've got are two perfect-bound 48-page issues of Starjammer's hijinks and adventures. And man, I feel like I should qualify. I'm super tired. I got back from New York last night, and my flight was very, very late. So instead of getting in just in time to get a full night's sleep, I got in at like four in the morning. Ouch. Yeah, yeah, it was very late. Did you see any, you know, X-Men or Spider-Man or J. Jonah Jameson's in New York? I did not. I did see Hamilton, oh, which was well, great. It was very cool. That's pretty good, too. It was awesome. I, I cried a lot. Entirely um, reasonable. But yeah, no, New York was good. And New York had remarkably pleasant weather. I gather from what I've heard and seen around here that my presence was the primary thing holding winter at bay in Portland. Yeah, it was kind of an icy hellscape. I mean, it wouldn't be that bad for another city that actually got real winters. But Portland doesn't get real winter very often. So we don't have, you know, very much in the way of salt trucks or plows or anything like that. So yes, icy hellscape. Yeah, people are really shitty about Pacific Northwesters not knowing how to winter. I mean, we were, I think, the first few years that we lived mm -hmm. here. And it's super unfair because the thing is, like, 
Portland and Seattle get a few days of serious snow a year. There just isn't enough and it's not predictable enough for them to invest in the kind of resources that it takes to keep a city running through a few inches of snow and ice, which, again, if you're not prepared for it, if you don't have that stuff, you know, that's not great. And I would really, really rather see a city sort of grind to a halt than see a whole ton of people without experience driving on snow and ice trying to drive on snow and ice. Mm -hmm. Entirely agree. So we've covered the previously in Portland. What about previously in the Marvel Universe? We know X-Factor hasn't gone into Judgment War yet, but we're post-Inferno. We know that Excalibur is pre-cross-time caper, but in the pre-cross-time caper, but with Widget Awake era that only existed in Marvel Comics Presents. What about the Starjammers themselves? We haven't seen these guys in a while. Should we do a quick recap on who they are, where they come from, and what they want? We totally should. So the Starjammers are space pirates who have united to fight the Shi'ar Empire, an intergalactic group of space bird jerks who are very powerful and have funny hair that looks kind of like the Centauri hair from Babylon 5. The Starjammers first got together in Mad Emperor Deken's slave pits. They were all prisoners of the Shi'ar and for a while ran basically with an imperial letter of mark after Deken's significantly less mad sister Lalandra took over. Now, unfortunately, Deathbird, the third Naramani, has taken over. She is not mad, but she is a huge jerk. And the Starjammers are working with Lalandra to basically spearhead the revolution against Deathbird. Who have we got on the team? So the Starjammers are led by Corsair, a guy named Christopher Summers. Summers, you say? Right, because he is the father of Cyclops and Havoc. My God! So you know how in Cyclops and Havoc's origin story, they were flying in a plane with their parents and the plane caught fire and uh, Cyclops and Havoc took the one remaining parachute ticket to safety before the plane exploded? Turns out that's not exactly what happened. What really happened was that there was an alien abduction zapping the plane with their zappy beams the Shi'ar Empire abducted Christopher and his wife, Catherine. They killed Catherine and uh, sent Christopher to the slave pens where he met up with all of the rest of the Starjammers and went off to become a space pirate. I should interject here, by the way, that we go into all of this in a fair lot of detail in episode seven, Cyclops Has a Good Day, featuring Greg Rocco, where we discuss the Starjammers in context of the fairly recent Cyclops solo ongoing series. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, a quick recap of the rest of them. We have Mademoiselle Hepzibah. She's a sexy skunk lady who kind of talks like Yoda, I guess. And she's actually named after a French skunk lady from the old comic strip Pogo. She is meta-named after that because her actual name is unpronounceable by humans, and so Hepzibah is the nickname that Corsair gave her. Yeah, he was a Pogo fan, I guess. Yes. We also have Raza, who's a cyborg swordsman who speaks in this sort of old-timey, old English uh, dialect. Uh, uh, Raza Longknife. Come on, you gotta do his whole name. That's a pretty good whole name, it's true. And then we have, okay, now according to Greg Rucka, you pronounce Cha'od's name Cha'od. Yes, it's, because swords are Jewish. Well, there we go. And so he's this kind of big green lizard guy, looks very much like the bruiser archetype, but he's all erudite and proper and such. He is excellent, and he is a pacifist. He is a somewhat reluctant marauder, not capital M marauder, but marauding like pirates do. Now, inseparable from Cha'od is Kri'i. How do you pronounce this? It's C-R- and then a plus sign, and then three E's. I think the way you said it works pretty well. I feel like you should have to break into falsetto for it. Like, I feel like the name should actually be a screech, but I don't think we should do that on the podcast. That would be kind of horrible, it's true. Oh man, my headphones were sad. So is Chod's pet, and he's sort of like a really pointy white space ferret thing guy. He's great. Then we also have Sikorsky, who's a helicopter-looking robot medic. He's kind of a jerk. He reminds me of Doc Cottle from the more recent Battlestar Galactica series. With us also is temporary Starjammer Binary. Binary is, in fact, Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, whose physiology has been altered by the brood to basically make her a near-infinite power generator. She's essentially a human star. And this is the same character who now goes by Captain Marvel in that eponymous series. And finally is Waldo, a character who I've sort of come to associate with Max from Flight of the Navigator. Oh, right. Like the sort of part of the ship that was also the ship itself, but had a little part that it talked out of. Yeah, basically. And that's Waldo's deal. Although, so I sort of hear Waldo as voiced by Paul Rubens. I can handle that. I can definitely handle that. Oh, man. Now I really want to go watch Flight of the Navigator again. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. The kid who played David got arrested for bank robbery recently, though. That's recently-ish. Surprising and unfortunate. I know. <laughs> Come on. Now, we have two sort of honorary Starjammers. One is the aforementioned Majestrix Lalandra Naramani, the proper ruler of the Shi'ar Empire who has been usurped by her sister, Deathbird. I love that they named their kids Deken, Lalandra, and Deathbird. I'm pretty sure that's on her Shi'ar birth certificate. 
And you're wondering why this one went evil. Well, I mean, you know, Mad Emperor Daken, that's also what it says on his birth certificate. So maybe the Shiara prophetic. Well, Deathbird later turns out to be a title in the Imperial Army. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other weird thing. Oh, the Shiara. It's like naming your kid General or Commando. (laughs) If I ever have a kid, I'm going to name him or her Commando. Commando Stokes. I think it sounds pretty good. The other honorary star jammer is none other than Professor Charles Xavier. Now, way back in the day, he got beaten almost to death by racists and then healed by the sewer wizard of the Morlocks. After that, he was supposed to, you know, use his telepathy sparingly and take it real easy. He promptly did not. And by the end of Uncanny X-Men number 200 was dying, so the Shi'ar took him into space to use their fancy space technology to make him not die. This is distinct from the time he faked his own death, but was actually the changeling so that he could hide in a basement and fight aliens, and the time that he actually got killed by the brood but the Starjammers showed up just in time to clone him precisely. Exactly, separate from those times. So, we have a bunch of space pirates, we have the deposed empress of the Shi'ar Empire, and we have Professor Xavier all hanging out doing space piracy. Got it? Good. Let's dive into Spotlight on Starjammers, also known as Falcon Quest. Sorry, (laughs) Falcon Quest? Yep. Man... As we previously mentioned, this is written by Terry Cavanaugh, who had previously been editing on the X-Line. He also later would go on to write Rise of Apocalypse, some late 90s X-Men, and a whole bunch of the somewhat infamous X-Men ongoing series. Art, on the other hand, is by Dave Cockrum, who is the greatest and awesome and perfect and should draw all the pirates ever forever. Now, this was almost Dave Cockrum's last X-Work, but apparently there was a little story years later called Odd Men Out that he did some work on. We dive in, as is appropriate in Starjammer's stories, with a space battle. The Starjammer is going to penetrate and board an enemy's ship's shields, and their plan is to pilot straight through the enemy's firing... Flazer. Flazer. That is P-H-L-A-Z-E-R and is my new favorite space word. Also, it sounds like, I don't know, something that would be tasty in some kind of 1990s candy. No, what it sounds like is the unlicensed dollar store version of Star Trek guns. Okay, well, I can handle that as well. It's a flazer, you know, and it's got a picture of Captain Crick with it. (laughs) Who looks vaguely like William Shatner, but not quite. In general, man, (laughs) so I've been talking shit about this story, but I really enjoy it. And part of why is that the same things that make it bad really make it feel to me like a really inexperienced teenage DM and group of players trying to run a module. Oh, and like taking it really, really seriously, even though they don't know what they're doing? Well, taking it varying degrees of seriously, depending on the player and depending on the scene. And you've got the increasingly sort of flustered DM kind of railroading them through and the players just sort of doing their own things and or getting kind of confused by the rules and yeah, the flazers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the fl- flazers feel very, very 90s TSR to me. Well, and the thing that happens immediately after that fits this theory as well, because Professor Charles Xavier, in his awesome purple space jumpsuit, decides that since they have to lower their own shields to get through the enemy ship shields, he's going to use his telepathy to telepathically shield the Star Jammer. That's really one of those, wait, I don't think you can do that on the rules. Well, it doesn't say I can't do that in the player's handbook. Okay, well, you're going to have to roll really high. Like, I'm setting the difficulty at 19, and you're going to get penalties. And in fact, it looks like Professor Xavier's player rolled exactly a 19, because while it is successful, he is knocked the hell out as he yells, Lilandra! It's really cool having a girlfriend whose name ends with an A, because then you can do that. You can just yell and have it turn into an arg, and it sounds really good. Or boyfriend. Uh, Yes, or boyfriend. Or friend of indeterminate gender. Regardless, it's good to have compatriots whose names can be translated into battle cries and or screams of terror or horror, pain or pleasure. It's just versatile that way. Exactly. You know, it doesn't pay off to limit the options there. And speaking of battle cries, binary Carol Danvers is trying to come up with one of her own. She tries flame on. Obviously, that's taken and then runs through burn up, fizzle forward and flash fry. Fizzle forward. I think that might be a good tonal match for the story in general. Yeah, I I do feel like it should be instead of to be continued, that should be the chapter end here. (laughs) Fizzle forward. Now, one thing that interests me here as the space pirate star jammers are space pirating their space hearts out is the dynamic between Hepzibah and Corsair. Now, normally we're used to Hepzibah being like the wild and crazy one, you know, having a killer instinct and throwing caution to the wind and Corsair kind of holding her in check a bit. And in this story, it's quite the reverse. He keeps talking about 
loot and booty and being a pirate and how great that is. And she keeps reminding him that this is all for the rebellion. They are rebels. That's why they're doing this, not just for the glory and the thrill. It's both. I mean, Hepzibah is the character who's extremely, extremely happy-go-lucky and reckless, but she's also one of the star jammers with the strongest anti-Shiar politics. That's true as well. Yeah, based on, you know, the horrible experience she had in the Shiar slave pits back in the day. Also, and one of the things that I think is consistent in the best characterizations of Corsair, he loves playing pirate. He is the dude who went, let's be space pirates. And despite doing it in a modern setting was like, we're going to have all the cool pirate trappings. We're going to do all the pirate stuff. What's the point of being a pirate if you can't say R? Honestly, he reminds me a lot of Nightcrawler in that regard. He is very, very attached to the genre trappings of his chosen career. He is. And, you know, we don't know much about Christopher Summers before he was captured by the Shi'ar, but I get the impression he was just sort of like a dad. You know, he had a job. He, he was had a wife no, he, he had was kids. he was a test pilot who was trying to get into the astronaut program. Well, right. But that's way less cool than being a space pirate. Yeah, but that's a job that in a lot of ways defines your life and drive Mm -hmm. significantly more than those other aspects. So him getting a chance to, you know, redefine his entire life based on space and adventure, you know, I would kind of jump at that as well. Although I would probably also say hi to my kids more because, you know, they're alive and they're right there. Regardless, the Starjammers, you know, Starjam, and what they find is that this spaceship that they're raiding doesn't have nearly the amount of cargo that they were planning to steal. It's kind of empty. What it does have is a captain, a potential captive, who will hopefully be able to give them information about not only the ship's destination, but larger Shi'ar operations. Now, in the meantime, unfortunately, since Xavier just barely rolled the 19 that he needed to uh, get the psychic shields up, he actually has fallen into a coma. The GM is being very harsh about this event. Corsair decides that the thing to do to get the captain to speak is to keelhaul him. At which point we learn that keelhauling means something entirely different in space. Now, I remember learning about keelhauling in some history class or another back when I was a kid. When you keelhaul somebody, you basically tie them to a rope and kind of scrape them along the bottom of your boat so they get cut the hell up by barnacles. Yeah, basically, if you do it fast, they effectively get flayed. If you do it slowly, they probably drown. It was legal punishment in various navies. Technically, I don't think it was used up until that point, but I I believe it was on the books until like the 1850s. That is horrifying. I looked it up right before this. It's super horrifying. It's not a cool thing to do. And, you know, you think of it as a pirate thing. But yeah, no, it was an official naval punishment in at least Britain and the Netherlands. Well, apparently, if you're a space pirate, what keelhauling means is to put somebody in a spacesuit and tie them to your ship and have them float kind of far away. Now, this doesn't work. This captain is unimpressed with the Star Jammers version of kill hauling, understandably. And so they decide the thing to do is to have him walk, I swear to God, this is what they call it, the space plank. Okay, now we can talk shit about this story, but it has a space plank and they make a dude walk it almost and it's awesome. No, it's not. It's totally awesome. It's All I ever really wanted not awesome. was a space plank no. in my life. It's in zero gravity. What the hell is the point of a plank? Well, it's magnetic. Until, presumably, it's not magnetic, and he sort of gently drifts off. Welp. I'm not saying they thought it through. I'm saying it's a great idea up until the point where they stop thinking it through. Well, regardless, it does successfully scare the hell out of the captain of the cargo ship that the Starjammers raided, because when they ask where he was going, figuring, well, if the holds are empty, they were probably going to pick up some cargo, he says they were heading to Falcon. That is Falcon with a PH, of course. And a K. This is Space Falcon, which you can tell by, again, its atypical spelling of no relation to Sam Wilson. So the captain goes to retrieve the map that was going to show where the Falcon was or where Falcon the place was. But unfortunately, in his rush to avoid death by space plank walking, he forgets to enter in the proper security codes. And as a security measure, his spacesuit explodes, sending the tiny capsules with disparate pieces of the map beaming off to distant ends of the universe. Now, remember, this is why you don't want to enter your iPhone password incorrectly three times. Your chest will explode, and you'll die, and all the data that was in your iPhone will fly to a bunch of different planets. I mean, Steve Jobs, I don't know what he was thinking, or maybe it was Tim Cook later on. Either way, harsh. You'd think the Star Jammers would be like, whatever, dude, what the hell, let's just go get another ship. But apparently the name Falcon has piqued their interest. Right, Lalandra's heard of Falcon. She doesn't know much about it, but she knows it's probably pretty awesome. You'd think she would have inquired more when she heard about it in the first place, but she didn't. All Lalandra really knows about Falcon is that it is a legendary world, 
a source of some kind of nebulous and poorly defined near infinite power. And she decides immediately that Falcon is the key to getting her thrown back and that they must head off immediately, recollect all of the little data pods, assemble the map and head to Falcon. But there's a catch. Lalandre isn't the only one who's curious about Falcon because while four of the data orbs scattered, the fifth was a homing beacon and it headed straight for the Shi'ar homeworld, which means that this captain wasn't just searching for Falcon for shits and giggles. He was probably working with Lalandre's sister, Deathbird, which means that if the Starjammers are going to find Falcon, it's imperative that they do it first. So it's time, of course, to split the party, which you should never do. But that's exactly what happens here because it's a former Marvel Comics present story, which always loved having little chapters focusing on individual characters. And Raza Longknife's player, intent on doing this right and speaking with appropriate drama and tying things at least back into the title of the module, tells the rest of the gang. Then we're ready for our Falcon quest. And they teleport away. And so now what we have is each of the characters, either solo or in pairs, going to a bunch of really weird random worlds looking for these pods. And we start out with my personal favorite, which is Corsair heading to a moon in the Groff system. The Groff system is basically full of distant and dramatic castles, three suns, and very, very tangly branches and vines. Corsair, being a proper shipwrecked Summers, immediately loses most of his clothing and is left dressed only in tatters. Yeah, I really enjoy that he talks about how the world is basically lifeless. Like, there are no actual threats here, as near as we can tell. But, like, seemingly within an hour, his uniform is just shredded and hanging off his body. Look, there's a very dense foliage, okay? It's very thorny. And Corsair dresses in gauzy and delicate filaments. You know, I kind of feel like he does that deliberately, it's true, because he's like, I have some amazing abs, look at these pecs, look at this awesome 70s chest hair, I gotta show this stuff off. Oh, unquestionably, I mean, this is a guy who learned to fight from watching Errol Flynn movies, he knows the power of a well-ripped blouse. So he, you know, wanders around, continuing, and he's watched by a couple of interesting characters, a couple of monsters, one of whom, named Vam, looks kind of like a bat dude, or say, a vampire in bat form, so that's an obvious name, right? Vam for vampire. Mm-hmm. Well, the other one, Murr, is a wolf with a long and luxuriant cascade of brown curls. Well, also a kind of scaly body, although the coloring makes that unclear. Is it scaly? It just looked furry to me. I think it's supposed to be scaly. Yeah, I looked closely because it comes up later. So we've got Vam for vampire and Murr for... Werewolf. Murr for werewolf. Okay... Well, regardless, Corsair follows the homing computer he's brought with him, although he doesn't fully know how to use it, to a gothic-looking castle in the distance. Unfortunately, he then botches his perception check and determines that since the doors and windows are boarded up, there's just no way in. So, like any good adventurer, he wanders off and gives up? Fortunately for Corsair, the DM's got his back, and so he gets a visit from Charles Xavier in astral form, who's here to offer some vaguely condescending advice and a brief description of how he's landed there despite being comatose. It was no great surprise to me that, as a telepath, I could merge my consciousness with a Starjammer ship itself. After all, Waldo is a sentient being. Corsair wanders back to the castle and thinks about the fact that he probably has Xavier to thank for his kids turning out okay, which is not true at all. Yeah, those those kids didn't turn out great. I mean, Well, and only one of them was remotely raised by Xavier. The other one, like, crashed with him for a couple weeks. Corsair is such an absentee dad. He should know these things. Again, he is such a proper Summers here, walking around in his ripped-up uniform, angsting about his family. When he is set upon by Vam the Vampire and Murr the Wolf, Corsair fights them off. Vam tries to send Murr running away to save herself, but unfortunately she comes back to check on him, and Corsair breaks the branch that Vam is perched on, sending him crashing into Murr, which kills her, at which point she reverts to a mermaid? So she was a mermaid werewolf. I think it's our old friend Samuel Haight back from the world of darkness yet again. Yay. Uh, But it's actually really sad because, you know, they were buds and presumably the only living or undead as the case may be beings on the entire planet. But regardless, Corsair uh, heads back to the castle, creates a grappling hook out of the weird branches around here. Wait, wait. Not only does he make the grappling hook out of the branches, but he carves a rope out of branches. He's very explicit about this. It's not that he made it out of vines. He carved it from branches. You know, if you roll a 20 on your survival check, you can do a lot of things. That's still some bullshit, man. Either way, he heads into the castle and he finds Vam in there, you know, sleeping vampire style. They get in a big fight. He stabs Vam. 
And he's all, you know, angsty about the whole thing. Well, he doesn't just stab them. He immediately concludes that, you know, this is probably a sentient creature, but I can't figure out how to communicate with it, so I'm just gonna kill it. And he does explain, angsting at the end, Earth and its moral code are behind me forever. The Falcon Quest is all that's important now. Okay, first of all, Chris, you don't even know what the Falcon Quest is. Second, Earth and its moral code really aren't particularly behind you. You're literally just playing angst pirate. And third, what the hell, man? Come on. Once Corsair has retrieved his pod, we come to the next part of the party. Here we've got Ha'od and Hepzibah, and they are on the uncreatively named planet Tronic, an entirely electronic planet. The population there died when a comet drew away the planet's atmosphere, but the automated defenses have somehow returned to life in the meantime. Which means we get some awesome scenes of Chod and Hepzibah fighting these various, you know, robots. And I think Dave Cockrum draws my favorite versions of both of those characters. Like, Chod can too often just be, like, a big lizard man, but with this, he looks like himself. He's got these kind of weird lips and kindly eyes with his big green scaly form. And Cockrum also remembers that Hepzibah is supposed to be a skunk lady, not a cat lady, but specifically a skunk lady, and draws her as such, which I appreciate. They are separated as an acid rain trap goes off. Hepzibah is able to sense it coming and push Ha'od out of the way, but again, they're split up, and they are trying to save themselves and each other, and both worrying and both reminiscing on their origins. Apparently, Ha'od himself was a conscientious objector, which is why he was imprisoned, and it was Hepzibah who convinced him to go full-on pirate, rebel properly against the Shi'ar. And Hepzibah is mainly just thinking about her dude and how she doesn't like here, she just wants to be back with him back at home. Hate this world, not like home, but home forever lost. Only Empire knows where Hepzibah taken from. Here, no place to curl up, no Corsair to curl up with. So Hepzibah grabs the pod and leaves through an electrical barrier, forcing Ha'od to emergency teleport them back, something he was really reluctant to do because he's worked out what's happening on the planet. Basically, this was a totally dead planet, and the arrival of the pod reanimated it, basically brought the sentient machines there back to life. So in taking the pot away and pulling it back, they've effectively killed it again, or rather Hepzibah has unilaterally made the choice to do so. Now, the next character we focus on is one I wasn't expecting to headline his own chapter, and that is Kree. That's right, kids. It's Kree time, and Kree heads to planet Lupus. This is, as it turns out, his home planet, but he's left for a good reason. He is wanted by the law, and he is caught and immediately re-imprisoned. And what I love about the way this is shown, it's very much like an old-timey cartoon. Like, we have all the police as these beavers dressed like the Keystone Cops. We have various versions of the white ferret species that Kree is in roles like a priest. And we have dialogue that's mostly just little symbols and little scribbles and speech bubbles. With occasional legible words in the middle of it. Now, Xavier is careful to explain that this is not a literal translation of what is happening on planet Lupus. Exactly. This is just as he puts it, a telepathic anthropomorphization of sorts that your limited intelligences can comprehend. Wow, condescending much? Well, it is Professor Xavier, and he's merged with a robot, so he's even more condescending. But I love the idea that the only way a person could possibly understand the planet of the space ferrets is by turning it into an old-timey cartoon. No, that's great. I wish he'd just do that with all the planets and everyone's adventures and everyone's culture, including Earth. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of that Excalibur Marvel Comics Presents story. With Lockheed. Lockheed and Widget as basically Holmes and Watson, exactly. Oh, I was thinking of the trial of Lockheed as well, actually. And the Your Cute Animal Companion actually has a rich and detailed inner life and possibly is a deadbeat dad wanted for not paying child support, which turns out to be Kree's deal. First, however, we get to see him going undercover, walking the mean streets of Lupus amid gangsters and prostitutes, meeting up with friends, making under-the-table deals, and finally encountering the woman who he left pregnant and alone and once again flees. Now, she does manage to save him from the beaver police and teleports back with him and the pod and all of their children. So we now have a bunch of these white space ferrets aboard the Starjammer. Their right. mission successful. And Kurt and his lady appear to have happily reunited at this point, and Ha'od immediately basically adopts the whole family. So that's three pods out of four successfully retrieved, because of course the fifth is heading back to Deathbird with news of the Falcon, or of Falcon the planet, or whatever the hell it is. What about the fourth? The fourth has landed on the planet Chirp. 
This is populated entirely by bug people, by in fact a ravenous horde of bug people who are able to fairly quickly fight Raza Longknife and Binary to a standstill. Man, these planets have the most incredibly on-the-nose names. Like, fucking Doki Doki Universe is more subtle than this nonsense. I think you're right, yeah. Doki Doki Universe is also better than this, because Doki Doki Universe is the goddamn best. It's an underrated, unknown game, it's true. It's about a robot learning about feelings, and its best friend is a balloon, and it's really good, and you should all play it because it is absolutely charming, and it's basically the safest and happiest place in the world. (laughs) Yes. As opposed to the planet Sherp, which is not. So, you know, Raza and Binary are badass warriors. I mean, Binary has the limitless powers of a star, and Raza's got, you know, a sword and some awesomeness. But this planet is literally composed of bug people. Like, even all the architecture, all the structures are just the carapaces of dead bug people. That's kind of gross, but also kind of awesome. I thought the same thing, yeah. And so eventually they realize that these guys are just going to keep coming, so they let themselves be carried away to wherever the bug guys have been trying to carry them to. They are, in fact, trying to carry Binary and Raza to the giant sort of queen bug, possibly mother, but definitely sort of the functional hive queen, regardless its gender. And Raza says, as Binary points this out, I question the gender, Binary. Which I read is, I question the gender binary, and I'm like, oh, dude, Raza Longknife, you're very progressive. Yeah, but maybe this isn't quite the time to bring it up. <laughs> it's not since entirely it's relevant. The middle of a, well, it's the middle of a battle, and I feel like that's one of those conversations that you sort of save for coffee. Now, binary just wants to kill the thing because they see the pod, and it actually is getting eaten by one of the bug people. But Raza stops her because, and I love this, he used his onboard computers, you know, the ones that live in his head and body, to learn about this culture very quickly and realize that they gain knowledge by ingesting things. Using Xavier, now going by Xavier slash Waldo's telepathic field, they are able to extract the information that was in the pod without having the pod itself and teleport back up to the Starjammer. And it's a good thing they're doing that because the Starjammer has been found. The Shi'ar Empire somehow tracked it down, somehow knew what was going on, and they're firing on the ship. And not only do they hit the ship, but they manage to take out one of the crew. There's a hole in the hull, and before the Starjammers can plug it, is sucked out into space, leaving a widow and a whole horde of tiny, weird, fluffy orphans. It's actually surprisingly sad. I mean, as bizarre as the story is, as much as I was sort of reading it with one eyebrow raised, I had a brief moment of true sorrow here. No, it's deeply poignant. And likewise poignant is the realization that the Starjammer has been taken down not only with the help of the probe, but with the help of one of their previously loyal crew members. Sikorsky has gone over to the Shi'ar. And he's hanging out with a bunch of Shi'ar troops that have taken the place over. What the fuck, Sikorsky? Uncool. God damn it, I thought you were an awesome little helicopter medic who was kind of a jerk but had a heart of gold. Or at least, you know, steel or platinum or something. Your namesake, Igor, would be very ashamed of you, probably. I don't know anything about Igor Sikorsky, really, but I'm sure that he would be appalled at this behavior. That seems a likely assumption. So Binary and Raza are trying to sneak through, trying to figure out what to do, when all of a sudden a door opens to reveal a whole lot of soldiers. And then promptly closes again as Binary and Raza fall through the floor to join the rest of the Starjammers. Despite the loss of their father and husband, Kurt's family has decided to do their best to aid the Starjammers, and they have been busily gnawing through wires and uh, very selectively sabotaging the electronics on the ship. They've been able, via this, to rescue Binary and Raza and block the Shi'ar. Okay, I work in IT, and I'm not saying I'm, like, you know, the best person in the world at my job— But I'm pretty sure I would know if you could control various complex electronic devices by biting cables in different ways. Have you ever tried? I guess not. Well, I know what I'm doing at work on Monday. Sikorsky, meanwhile, has also brought Xavier's mind, and therefore the map, back to Xavier's body, leaving both dead. Yeah, so Xavier is now not only comatose from the poor decision that was made at the beginning, but he is in fact deceased. Most people don't know that Charles Xavier was never seen again after this one obscure story. I don't think you can be comatose and dead at the same time. I mean, I think it's like saying he's not only not breathing, but he's also dead. The one kind of implies the other. I just go back to that one Nightcrawler's Inferno story, so I'm just going to say in the words of Xavier himself, he is not alive. Here's a question. Does this count as Xavier faking his death? I don't think so. I think this is Terry Kavanaugh faking Xavier's death. So you can't actually take a drink, but you can look longingly at one. So all these Starjammers are reunited. They have the map on the ship, albeit, you know, in Xavier's head, and now he's dead. 
Unfortunately, Deathbird herself picks this moment to come out of nowhere, kidnap Lalandra, and teleport away. So now the Starjammers have a choice. They can save Lalandra. Or they can retrieve the Falcon, whatever the hell it is. And that cliffhanger and that terrible choice brings us to the end of the first issue of Spotlight on the Starjammers, at which point we get what kind of feels like the prize at the bottom of the box of mediocre sugary cereal full of marshmallows, which is some really cool blueprints for the Starjammer itself. Yeah, now we do have, you know, the weight and the length and the width, and I don't know if you can really calculate BMI for a spaceship like we did for the Celestials, but I will say that apparently the expected endurance of the Starjammer is 1.4 mega years. For those of you playing along at home, that's 1.4 million years. I assume this is like under ideal archival circumstances, not with the amount of wear and tear that the Starjammers actually put on it. Right, I'm pretty sure that Corsair just crashes the Starjammer into asteroids for the hell of it. That seems like something he would do. Funny you should mention that. Because that's basically what he does next. The Starjammers decide that they are going to go after Lalandra. Uh, they escape into the cloaked star skimmer, which is sort of their shuttlecraft. They jump into, oh man, God, the ships in this have such good general category names. They've got scuttlebug fighters. These are what the Starjammers have. And the Shi'ar's little individual fighter ships are the star rats. Ask your parents, collect them all. Right, except the toys were never made of any of these. Which is unfortunate, because I mean, okay, X-Men toys were cool, don't get me wrong, and there was a Corsair action figure, there was even a Ho'od action figure in Raza, as I recall, but I want a full Starjammer's playset. I want every ship, every villain, every weird alien, and I definitely want Cree! Oh, that would be perfect, like each Starjammer could come with a little piece of the Starjammer? Oh, right, it could be one of those build-a-figure kind of things. Yeah. The, the figure is the ship. Marvel, get on it. So, before the Starjammers can save Lalandra. Deathbird orders her to be killed, and Sikorsky dives in front of a shot meant for her, giving Lalandra time to dive down a waste disposal chute. The guards are too big to follow, but Sikorsky comes with and explains to her at length as they muck through the sewers that he was infected by a computer virus, quote, during last regular link up to free galactic medical database. Man, Sikorsky, that's what you get for running unpatched Adobe Flash. I mean, come on, you know that shit's not secure. I ran out of wear. Even so, why are you running Windows anyway? Because Mac is proprietary, and repairs are difficult, and I get broken very often. That's nah, legit, I suppose. Occasionally, uh, I am forced to engage in melee, despite <laughs> not being a melee class. So, Lalandra, with Sikorsky by her side... Pirates do not receive workers' compensation. I am forced to be modular to make repairs simpler, or I would cease to exist. Also, I run only shareware. Corsair refuses to pay licensing fees. So, Lalandra and Sikorsky confront Deathbird yet again, and I'm pretty sure that Lalandra actually throws a container of Shi'ar Poop. waste? Yeah, she throws a big vat of shit on Deathbird to stun her. Lalandra's about to stab Deathbird, but Lalandra is teleported away by Corsair before she has a chance to do so. But, you know, Corsair does point out that she was about to get killed by the, uh, seen by the readers, but not seen by Lalandra, Imperial Guard who just showed up. These are the Shi'ar's elite multi-species forces that uh, work for whoever happens to be in the Shi'ar throne. Now, we've met a number of these guys before. We've got all of the usual suspects like Gladiator and Oracle, but we've also got a new kid on the team, and this is the previously unknown Zenith. Who Raza immediately recognizes as his long-lost brother. What? That's a thing, and that will certainly be a thing. But in the meantime, the Starjammers are on the run. They figure, all right, we have Lalandra. Now it's time to get the Falcon before Deathbird has a chance to do so. Yeah, unfortunately for the Starjammers, Deathbird's also got teleporters, and she and the Imperial Guard decide they're going to abandon the ship. The crew is going to die. Binary busted a hole in the hull of Deathbird's ship, and Deathbird and her guard teleport to the Starjammer. Now, the Starjammer is currently not running, but... Dubiously fortunately for the pirates, Zenith of the Imperial Guard has a superpower. He is somehow able to use his power, which is nominally to feed off potential energy. And I get the impression that Kavanaugh is not entirely sure what potential energy is. But that aside, uh, Zenith somehow uses this to jumpstart the Starjammer. And it doesn't take the Starjammers themselves long to run into the Imperial Guard and get into a great big fight. And as usual, we'll skip over the details, except for one really important part which is that Carol Danvers, binary, confronts Zenith and, well, kills him. Right, he tries to use his powers on her, but discovers that her potential is limitless and therefore he can absorb no energy from her, which seems like it's the exact opposite of how it should work. But anyway, she kills him. 
And she mentions as she's killing him that without Raza around to stop her, she can show just how powerful she actually is. So Zenith's last words are, Did you say Raza? See, it's that thing from before, like with Alondra. Yeah, see, it doesn't just have to be romantic. It can be familial relationships, enemies, etc. Now, I do like this version of Carol Danvers. Most people today know her as Captain Marvel, the hot-headed but noble lead of her own series. But she's definitely had times in the past when she was ruthless, when she was ruled by anger and didn't really care very much about killing. This is one of those times. Yeah, Carol has always kind of had a, well, if I can, why shouldn't I approach to her powers? And when she's as powered up as she is as binary, that gets dangerous fast. So that's that. The Starjammers have basically beaten the Imperial Guard for the time being. And as a bonus, it turns out Cree, who fell into space before, he's totally alive. The ship saved him. Right. He is able to help Corsair confront Deathbird, but not quite soon enough. Deathbird is able to escape with a data disk with the info from the Falcon location. And basically, this leaves the Starjammers high and dry, Deathbird with all of the cards, and then with no way to follow. So Corsair thinks about it. He's like, all right, I mean, we've got our ship up and running thanks to Binary's powers. Thanks for that, Carol. But we have no idea where Deathbird went. I have an idea. Let's turn off the shields to the ship and just fly around until we hit whatever traps she's laid for us. Right, because she won't want us to follow. She'll trap her path. We can just see where we blow up and then go that way. And as it turns out, it works. So they're on their way on a very long trip to find her. They're doing what they do with their free time, having tense conversations, drinking, etc. Or in the case of Corsair, attempting to set a romantic scene with Hepzibah. He starts to explain that, you know, they have this dangerous mission coming up, and she replies, Scare Hepzibah, Corsair need not. Seduce Hepzibah, Corsair need not. And we see one of my favorite panels in all of Starjammer's history, which is the two of them laughing uproariously as he carries her to bed. It's pretty wonderful. If you enjoy the Starjammers, and especially if you enjoy Corsair and Hepzibah, I will refer you back to episode seven, where we discuss them at great length, and especially this relationship with Greg Rocca. So we have a little bit more of them killing time. Uh, Raza angsting over the fact that his brother's been killed and only he was supposed to have the chance to kill his brother. We never find out any more about that, but even so... Lalandra being very sad about Xavier being lost, probably dead permanently at this point. When they discover the actual coordinates of Falcon and where they were headed. Surprise, it's a planet we know very, very well. They head down to Earth where they find Deathbird's ship in the ocean with her and a bunch of Shi'ar warriors unconscious and a stasis pod in the center of this scene of carnage with a surprising character inside. Not that surprising, because they've been obliquely naming this character from the start of the series. Falcon, as it turns out, is not a planet and it's not an artifact. It refers to Falcon, a bird of prey, or, for instance, the phoenix. The Starjammers get there just in time to meet up with Rachel Summers' teammate Excalibur facing through the bottom of the ship coming to meet them, assuming that the Starjammers themselves were the ones responsible for all of this. Everyone fights because it's a misunderstanding and they're all superheroes and that's what you do. There are a couple of great moments here. I do enjoy Megan turning into one of Ho'od's race to face him, still in her sort of orange jumpsuit thing. And Captain Britain having an I can't hit a woman, I must hit a woman robot monster moment. Kree and his family somehow managed to get Widget to pour out a whole bunch of other multiversal versions and duplicates of them. So now there are like 50 of them. And so their misunderstanding-based fight can't last for too long because a third party shows up very quickly. So, of course, this leads the misunderstanding-based fighting Excalibur and Starjammers to team up against the Imperial Guard. The grand melee continues. So, as everybody punches everybody, Deathbird heads over to Rachel Summers' stasis capsule and grabs these two little tentacly bits and begins to empower herself with the Phoenix Force. She is Death Phoenix! Or at least she is for about two seconds before Lalandra clocks her and knocks her the hell out. Meanwhile, the Starjammer itself, the ship, has flown off on its own quest. Because it decided to meet up with another spaceship that it saw very recently at the end of X-Factor number 50. That's right, it is ship, X-Factor's own sentient ship. Because we apparently have to bring every character in the world into this story. Well, it's also the solution to a problem that the Starjammers are facing. Earth is surrounded right now by the Shi'ar Imperial fleet, and they've got to find a way to get those guys away. And I guess Starjammer comes up with the idea of, let's just go say hi to Ship. Maybe Ship will come hang out in space with us, which Ship does. Ship just takes the hell off because Ship does that all the time. And the Shi'ar see it and go, oh my god, it's a celestial ship. 
fuck. Run, 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 run the other way. Let's just nope out of here and do. So the Shi'ar fleet is gone. Deathbird has been knocked the hell out after being Death Phoenix for only about two seconds. And the good guys have effectively and bizarrely won. But there's one more hitch. Because while they could just, you know, let Excalibur go and split up, Corsair has an idea for what to do for one more use of a bit of the Phoenix power. And we see that come to fruition months later on a planet on the outer rim of Shi'ar space controlled by, you know, the Shi'ar. The Starjammers are in hiding, but they are disguised fomenting rebellion among the populace. And they have found or they have manufactured a figurehead, a symbol to unite the rebels against the Shi'ar Empire. It's the one. It's the only. Bald Phoenix. Wait, what? Yeah, so Professor Xavier apparently got resurrected by some of the residual Phoenix Force left in Deathbird's machine. Now he's wearing a dark Phoenix costume, skin tight, red and gold, and flying around and using telekinesis, leading an intergalactic rebellion against the Shi'ar Empire. This is never referenced again. I feel like we should just end the episode. I mean, where do you even go from there? The only place I can think of to go is the other gigantic plot event that is also never referenced again, which is us finding out that apparently this entire time Deathbird had been manipulated by one of her crew who was a member of the cult of Thanos. So she is manipulated into attacking Earth one more time for the glory of Thanos also never comes up again. Yeah, and she doesn't actually attack Earth either. This freaking story. So there are so many fun little parts in it. Seeing the characters split up and do their own thing, seeing Corsair on a weird vampire world, getting his costume ripped up all the time. I enjoy it, but it just doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, inexperienced players going through a badly paced module is a good um, analog. Another one would be a writer just clicking a random plot element generator over and over and over and using whatever he finds. It's disconnected. It's ridiculous. The comparison to the Nightcrawler limited series is kind of inevitable because you've got Cockrum and you've got the pirate adventures. And that's got the same kind of episodic sort of picaresque feel, but it's much more cogent and much, much better put together. And this series, I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's worth a read. But man, is it a mess. If nothing else, Dave Cockrum's art is always a pleasure to see. And this is, like we said, one of the last X opportunities to see that art. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I especially love the way he draws binary. Yeah, I mean, Bill Sienkiewicz draws my favorite binary, but his binary isn't exactly on model. In terms of a more standard look, it's all about Cockrum. With that done and the Starjammers sufficiently spotlit, you've got questions. Insist on the impossible 179, asks Sun Tumblr. Hey, Jay and Miles, what do you guys think of the Resurrection announcements so far? So for those of you unfamiliar, Resurrection, or Resurrection, I suppose, is Marvel's new relaunch of the X-Men coming in spring of 2017. And we've gone through a number of those in a fair degree of detail with commentary in the video reviews. I'll drop a link to those in the visual companion to this episode, which you'll be able to find at explainthexmen.com. But meanwhile... Meanwhile, let's go through it just very briefly. So my responses to the various books that have been announced range from intrigued to ecstatically excited. So toward the latter end, Iceman and Jean Grey, them getting their own books, that's been a long time coming. And I'm really excited about the creative teams on both books, particularly seeing Dennis Hopeless back um, writing young Jean Grey. Yeah, he's written my favorite Jean Grey ever in X-Men Season 1, so that's going to be awesome. So the core X-Men books, X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold, they have interesting lineups, and I like the idea of the X-Men going into a more superheroic place after so much bleakness for so many years. But I also kind of feel like it's a missed opportunity because it's mostly old classic characters, and that means we don't have nearly as much diversity as we might. And because of the way the lineups are broken up, um, and because one of the teams is just the originals, the two flagship teams are just pervasively, pervasively white. And I mean, if we're going for such a 90s feel with them being called X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold, I mean, come on, Bishop, he's right there. He's Celia awesome. Reyes. There are a ton of other characters that they could have pulled from. There are a ton of the new cool characters they could have pulled from. Not all of those, because actually there's a third team book, which I'm very excited about, which has a lot of what those two is lacking, and that is Generation X. Yeah, we have some new voices as the creators on this book. We have some underrepresented characters and some characters that I never get sick of, like Quentin Quire. Nature Girl. And Nature Girl. She's great. The Cable ongoing. I don't know. I'm a little nervous about that one because Cable can be one of the best X-Men characters or one of the worst X-Men characters, depending on how he's handled. We'll see, I guess. And then Weapon X. I mean, okay, I'm a little over the whole grim and gritty Kill Squad book premise. We've had that for so long now. I'm super over that premise. I'm also super over 
X books drawn by Greg Land, which this one is. But we do have Greg Pak writing, and he's done some really cool, interesting things with premises I wouldn't have been a big fan of had I just heard about them without the creative team attached. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, there's no book in this lineup that I can utterly discard. Like, there's nothing in here that doesn't have at least one very strong point going for it. And actually, along those lines, let's go to our second question. RevZJ asks on Tumblr, How do you balance your opinion on a creative team versus your desire to read the characters? There's some good resurrection pitches with questionable teams and great teams with odd pitches. What do you put more weight on? Well, on X books for us, that's kind of a moot point because we have to review them all. But it really, really depends on where your priorities lie. I've talked about this in terms of ethics, in terms of like creators who you feel like you can or can't support, stuff like that. But likewise with, you know, what's the stuff that matters? What's the stuff that makes it worth following a series? It's super subjective and it's entirely up to you in the end. I am personally much more likely to follow a creative team that I like to a character or book I'd been previously uninterested in than the reverse. But there are definitely characters I'll follow through iffy creative teams and even runs. In cases where I'm not sure, I generally won't subscribe to the book in question in issue format. I'll check out one or two issues off the shelf or I will trade weight and get it from a library and see how I like it, which I've talked at length about how crap I think the pre-order system is for determining comic sales. And this is one of those points where it's kind of a no-win because the continued existence of ongoing series depends a lot on pre-orders and subscriptions and series orders. But that doesn't really give you a way to check things out and see if you like them. It's tremendously frustrating. It's not an ideal scenario. And yeah, there's not a good blanket answer. You just sort of have to figure out what for you is worth following. It helps tremendously if you work at a comic shop and get an employee discount. I'm sorry, that's a solution that's kind of specific. But yeah, ultimately, what it comes down to is look through what you want, look at your budget, look at your options, and choose your priorities accordingly. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and entities. Apparently, a number of people have been choosing sexy voices, So, obviously, there's only one option there. I am turning the mic over to the one and only Major Christopher Summers, Corsair. Back on Earth, I was just Christopher Summers, pilot, husband, and dad. Not bad, don't get me wrong. But now, I'm Corsair, pirate captain, swashbuckler, and the galaxy's greatest lover, as my space skunk lady friend will happily tell anyone who will listen. Kitty Byrne and Jason James, or should I say, Laser Buccaneer and Cosmic Privateer? You have the same opportunity, my friends. Be brave, be bold, and above all, out here in the black romantic spacescape, be forever sexy. And next up is the angry Claremontian narrator. It's been a long time since you've thought of the planet of your birth as home, Armand Babu. In the years since you've been gone, Earth has become a painful reminder of the man you once were. Now you silently curse Xander Christopher for bringing you back to these shores and face to face with the past you've spent your life trying to flee. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, grab your guns, check your pouches, and prepare to body-slide by one. It's cable time. It's cable time.